0: Amen. Thank you so much. If you would turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We mentioned last week, as we started looking at Acts chapter 13, that Charles Spurgeon said. Uh, To make ourselves happy, we must make others happy. And as I mentioned, I think the context must have been the major theme of his ministry, which, which was the gospel of Jesus Christ and the pursuit of sharing that gospel with people so that they might find their happiness in God. And I mentioned the fact that I had some interaction with some Jehovah's Witnesses And after that conversation that I uh, asked myself the question and wish I'd asked them the question, what are you really offering people? By going door to door and talking to people. And that's really what we have to ask ourselves as Christians. Are we offering people anything at all? And if so, what are we offering people? And what we're doing now in Acts chapter 13 is really In a sense, an extension of the end of the book of Revelation, where at the end of the book of Revelation, there is a final call to people to come to Christ. And that verse that I'm thinking of is verse 17 of Revelation 22, which says the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty, come let the one who wishes, take the water of life without cost. And so in that verse, you've got the spirit saying, come, which is obviously God himself talking to sinners, saying, come and partake of the water of life, the water that will cleanse you of your sin and will satisfy your soul, make you truly, fully and forever happy. Then you also have the bride, which is a picture of the church collective, collectively saying, come. Then you have the individual when it says, let the one who hears say, come. That's the individual believer in his own daily life saying, come, come drink from the water of life. Come and experience the water that will cleanse you and will satisfy you. And we know that that water is ultimately pointing not to a thing, but a person, that Jesus is the living water, that to receive him is to receive the Forgiveness of our sins is to receive eternal life, is to receive the satisfaction of our souls by receiving the person of Jesus. And so the book of Revelation is very much about future judgment and future new heavens and new earth and how Christians are called to be faithful no matter what happens, no matter how hard the trials are, no matter how tempting the temptations are, to remain faithful to the end. Trusting that one day God is going to bring a consummation to all that Jesus has done. But in the process, uh, between the first coming and the second coming, we are to have a message. We're to share the the good news. We're to have an offer of life to people that is authorized by God. So that we're just like uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians when he says, On behalf of God, we beg you be reconciled to God. So it's God through us who is offering the water of life. And so Acts 13, I think, is a helpful scripture. The whole chapter is a long chapter, but I think it's a helpful chapter in thinking through what are the different aspects of what is taking place in offering the water of life. And like I mentioned last week, we're going to talk about some of the applications, which I've summarized here And these seven points, we've talked about the first point. Number one, you don't have to be an expert to offer the water of life. Today, we'll talk about the fact that you you and I should expect it to be hard. It's not going to be an easy thing, but we should play the long game. We We should focus on the basics. We should present an able and willing savior, someone who can save and who is willing to save anyone who will trust in him. Jesus, but in light of the nature of our sinfulness and in light of God's sovereignty over the whole process, we need to realize that we're not responsible for people's unbelief and we're not responsible for people's belief. And so this chapter talks about these things in various ways. And as we go through it, I hope you'll see that and I hope it will be an encouragement to you as you think about what does it mean for me? Uh, who hears, who's heard and believed to actually offer that water of life to the people in my world. Well, Acts 13 starts off with just three verses um, where it highlights God's heart for um, sharing the gospel, for us to share the gospel. You could call it God's missionary heart. In verse one, it says, Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manian who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And so this uh, first part of this chapter highlights the fact that it's God's heart for missions that's being reflected there because God is the one who's sending out the missionaries. But you may wonder, um, why did I say the first application is that you don't have to be an expert? You don't have to be especially gifted or called to be a missionary To share the gospel. Because aren't those verses about how God calls people like Saul and Barnabas to do just that? And you're right. Those verses are very much about the fact that God does call certain people to go to other nations, other cultures, and to offer the water of life. But we would be mistaken to think that the people sending them out are sending them to do things that aren't already being done. When they laid their hands on them, they were essentially saying, we want you to do in other places what we're doing here. Which means all of us, even though we're not necessarily missionaries, taking the water of life or the offer of the water of life to other places, other cultures, other nations, we right here in our own homes and our own workplaces are to have a message It says there's life in Christ and he offers it to you freely. No works, no effort, no merit. But if you receive him, you can have it. And that that kind of thing was going on in the church there. And God is sending people out into the Gentile world. This is the first uh, journey that Paul took to share the gospel to the Gentiles. And so we would be remiss to think that they were sending people out to do things that they weren't already doing. And that's one reason why, if you want to go to another country and be a missionary, you need to make sure you're doing here what you're planning on doing there. Because some people think there's a transformation that takes place when you get on the plane. And you become a missionary by getting on the plane to the other country. And the reality is, no, you just are put into a different culture to do, to do the same thing that we're called to do in our own Homes. And so, what we find in these first uh, verses is the importance of realizing that sinners come to Christ because Christians talk. Um, Paul says in Romans that how will they believe if there aren't people sent to preach the gospel? And so, one of the aspects of how people become Christians is to understand that God uses his own people. To save a people for himself. He uses his own people to share the gospel. And it's through our talking. Speaking well of God. Speaking well of Jesus. Offering life to people. In that way that people come to Christ. Um, missionaries or believers sent out to other places and nations and cultures. To do what the sending Christians are doing at home. And so that's the first point. And to encourage us that. You don't have to be gifted to be a missionary. Missionaries do other things. Missionaries are gifted in special ways to do things that we aren't meant to do. But we can still share the gospel, and that's why we want to encourage each other to do just that. But the next verses that we're going to look at are in contrast, in a sense, or might be a little surprising in light of the first point, that that God sends people out, he sends his people out, To share the gospel, and you would think, well, if God is telling me to do something, then it ought to be easy. Have you ever um, did something that you thought was God's will for you to do, and it was really hard and everything was seemingly going wrong, and your first thought was, maybe this isn't what God wants me to do? Our natural thought is to think, well, if there's opposition or there's difficulty Uh, If there's pain and suffering involved, then maybe this isn't what God wants me to do. Maybe I've made a mistake. And if you read the book of Acts, you realize there was all kinds of opposition to the very thing that God called believers to do. And so we shouldn't be surprised if that's happening in our own lives as we seek to do the very same thing in our world. Uh, Right now in Canada, uh, there's a pastor who's in jail for a number of different reasons, for worshiping during COVID when he wasn't supposed to, for helping the truckers who were protesting and those kinds of things. And his son recently said this. He said, I myself have been charged for preaching and reading the Bible publicly because the government claims the Bible isn't inclusive and is hateful. This is what the Canadian government is doing to us. So that's what's happening just above our northern border. Uh, Pastors are being arrested and Christians are being harassed for publicly in various ways, either meeting for worship or reading the Bible in various ways because the idea is the Bible isn't inclusive and is actually hateful. And so there is real opposition to the truth. And so in light of that, let's look at verses 4 through 12. And think about that in light of the fact that we're going to encounter opposition as we seek to actually do something that you think people would want to hear, like the offer of life, the offer of forgiveness, the offer of eternal life and happiness. Well, it says in verse 4, "...so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews." And they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Pampas, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately amidst, And a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. And so Saul and Barnabas, which will become Paul and Barnabas. Paul is um, the Roman version of the Hebrew name Saul. And so they leave. Antioch and they sail to an island in the Mediterranean called Cyprus and they bring along with them John who's known as John Mark who actually was who saw the ministry of Jesus and who we believe wrote the gospel of Mark and so they're together and they're on this island and they go from the east coast of this island and preach the gospel all the way to the west coast of this island and they encounter a man, ironically, who's named Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus. And he's a false prophet. He's claiming some kind of divine connection, being some kind of divine messenger. He's a magician, which means he was probably some kind of um, cult um, priest of some kind. Um, a medium um, somehow connected with witchcraft and the occult and that kind of thing. And Paul challenges him, uh, maybe in a surprising way. Seems like, Paul, aren't you being a little harsh with this guy? And the reality is that there are times in the scripture where you see Jesus calling the Pharisees serpents. Why does he do that? And why did Paul do what he did? Because there are certain instances where you have to be very, very direct and clear about what the truth is regarding what is happening. And so for the sake of Sergius Paulus, Paul was very clear about what was taking place there. Uh, He wanted that proconsul to understand that this is what's happening here. I'm preaching to you the good news from God. And this man is of Satan and Satan is opposing what we're saying. He says he's a son of the devil. The word devil means slanderer. And who does the devil slander? He slanders God and he slanders God's people. And so that's what's taking place here. Uh, This man, Bar-Jesus or Elimus, um, is saying that these guys are lying to you. This isn't true. What I'm telling you is the truth. And Paul makes it very clear that he is truly or a or uh, bar Jesus is truly the one lying. And then he pronounces a judgment upon him. And ironically, um, this magician is trying to keep the proconsul from believing the light. He's trying to prevent him from seeing the light. And God judges him by removing him from being able to see the light. He makes him blind. And another ironic thing about this is the person who pronounces that judgment on him was also made blind. He was struck blind on the road to Damascus. And it was actually part of God's mercy to Paul that he was struck blind. And so you could argue but this was actually a merciful thing that God did to this magician. He struck him blind because he could have struck him dead. He didn't. He just struck him blind that he might begin to rethink what he really uh, was saying and doing. And so and it says the proconsul um, was amazed. And the word for amazed there means basically he was overwhelmed uh, it literally means he was struck with what had happened. He just couldn't believe what took place. And one of the interesting questions about all of this is, some people ask the question, how come every time um, someone hears the gospel, God doesn't do something like that? Work a miracle so that they will believe. Well, you might recall that God um, did something similar for Doubting Thomas, right? Uh, Doubting Thomas says, you know, I'm not going to believe until I see Jesus and see his wounds and those kinds of things. And so Jesus shows up and Doubting Thomas believes. But what does Jesus say in that context? He says, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed or do not see and yet believe. A miracle isn't necessary for people to believe. But if God determines that something is necessary, he will give us whatever we need in order for us to not be able to say that we didn't have all the information we needed and to save by grace those he's saving. It's interesting if you uh, listen to the testimony of Muslims in uh, Islamic countries um, many of them will say that they did have an unusual experience. They had a dream of Jesus. And in one of the table talk issues that Ligonair puts out, they interviewed um, uh, someone who was a Christian but was from uh, had that background. And what he said was he says it is simply a fact that dreams are an important element in the testimonies of many Muslims who have come to faith in Christ. He says, I believe dreams are an important part of many of the cultures around the world, and God is using dreams as a bridge to draw people to Christ. However, the impact of most dreams is to encourage the individual Muslim to become more open to hear about Jesus from Christians, visit a church, or read the Bible for the first time. Usually dreams in themselves do not have a full-fledged gospel presentation, and they do not replace the need for a human witness or the scriptures. And so if you notice, in this account with the proconsul, there was a miracle. There was something unusual, something supernatural that was a part of the picture, but he believed based on the word of God that was preached. And so God might do something unusual. He might give someone a dream, especially in a country where um, it's hard Uh, For people to hear the gospel in various ways. He might do that. And yet the reality is. um, Most people don't need that. Most people just need the word of God. But the truth is. God will give us whatever we need. And that's why it says in Romans 1. When we stand before God. Every person will stand before God. And no one will say. I have an excuse for my unbelief. We will stand before him without excuse whether we had a miracle or not. And if you recall, many people in the ministry of Jesus saw his miracles and still didn't believe. And so uh, that may or may not happen, but God sometimes does that. And we should not dismiss it if we hear accounts of that. But ultimately what God is doing is, uh, the reason why sinners become believers, and what I mean by sinners, those who are unbelieving, how do they get to a place of believing? Believing. The light overcomes the darkness. Elimas, Jesus is a picture of a representative of the darkness. Paul is a representative of of the light and the light overcomes the darkness. And so what is the point for us in thinking about what to do with regard to people in our lives that don't know Christ? Well, the point is to say that I should expect there to be pushback. And just because there's pushback that doesn't mean something's wrong. Doesn't mean God doesn't want me to share the gospel with them. It simply means that there's a battle going on between light and darkness. That where the light is being proclaimed, you can expect pushback from the darkness. And so it's helpful to just realize that we don't want let we don't want to let opposition keep us from being an intentional intentional witness for Christ. For instance, in 1 Peter 3, it says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. In other words, intimidation and and, uh, opposition should not keep us from bearing testimony to Christ. What's being pictured here is the reality that before God works in a person's heart, their heart is hard toward the gospel. And yet, Spurgeon talks about the fact that in the Old Testament, God's word is compared to a hammer. And he talks about the fact that a hammer, if you can imagine um, someone who's charged with breaking up stones. He takes out his hammer and he begins whacking those stones as hard as he can. And you would think if that, that um, man who was charged with this task were to say, you know what, I need to uh, get a fancier hammer. And I need to make sure that my hammer looks really appealing and all those kinds of things. He says you would think that that was kind of foolish to be so concerned about how your hammer looks. He would say the important thing is to use your hammer and to repeatedly hit and strike those stones. And so he begins to think through that illustration. He says people will say uh, there there is a very... Obdurate man or stubborn or resistant or hard-hearted man there. And Spurgeon says, striking with the gospel, striking with the gospel hammer, the, the good news hammer. Someone else will say, oh, but he ridicules and scoffs at the truth. Never mind if he does keep on smiting him with the gospel. Oh, but in a certain district, I have wielded this hammer against the rock for years and nothing has come of it. He says, still go on wielding it, for this is a hammer that never failed yet. Only continue to use it. Everything is not accomplished with one stroke, nor perhaps with 20 strokes. So he begins to say, if you think about it, if you've ever tried to break up something that was really hard, you might have struck it many, many times and have seen nothing change. Then you strike it one more time and it disintegrates. This is the way he talks about that. He says, "...there is a process of disintegration taking place at every stroke. The great mass is inwardly moving even when you cannot see that it is doing so. And there will come at last one blow of the hammer, which will seem to do the deed. But all the previous strokes contributed to it and brought the rock into the state or right state for breaking it up at last." Hammer away then, my brethren, hammer away with nothing but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, he's not saying, take your Bible and beat them over the head with it. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, keep on sharing the good news with gentleness and reverence, with kindness, with a heart of tenderness, with compassion, with patience. You're not being harsh. He's not saying the hammer is where you just... Beat up on people. That's not the picture he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that as we speak the truth in love, truly speak the truth of the gospel in love, we are repeatedly working on those hard hearts. Now, obviously, there can be challenges to that, but we want to pray that God will help us to do that wisely and well. At the end, he says, "O God, grant that we may not be disappointed at the result of our labors, but may the hard hearts yield after all to the blows of the gospel hammer. Part of our problem in sharing the gospel is that uh, we don't think about it that way. We don't think about the importance of continually loving people with the truth and, and praying that God over time will soften that heart and and cause it to disintegrate, that hard heart to disintegrate. But another challenge is just the fact that we do get pushback. We don't don't have the, simply the pushback of the hard heart. We have the pushback of people thinking ill of us when we start identifying with Christ and when we start talking about the gospel. Um, somebody has talked about um, well, they actually wrote a book called How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. And they use the illustration of this person in the uh, series, The Office. Now, I've never watched that, but many of you probably have. Um, does, do any of you know who the character Angela is in The Office? Okay, the way they talk about it here is that Angela represents the close-minded, angry, and judgmental version of a Christian that we often see in the media. And so there's this one point at which Jim asked uh, everyone to share three books that they would bring with them if they were stranded on a desert island. And so he asked Angela uh, about that. And obviously, first of all, she says, I'd bring the Bible. And he says, okay, what about second? I'd bring the purpose-driven life. And he says, okay, third. And she says, that's it. Just need the Bible and the purpose-driven life. And the comment on that is that it's just an illustration of the fact that Christians seem to be so narrow-minded, so limited in their scope, and pretty much set in their ways and unloving. And many of us are aware the world looks at Christians that way, and we don't want to pay that price. We don't want to be Angela. We don't want to be the Christian that everybody thinks is weird and narrow-minded and bigoted and all those kinds of things. And so um, the reality of opposition reminds us that there will be a cost to identifying with Jesus because that's the nature of sin. That's the nature of the devil. That's the nature of the world. There's going to be pushback but what we want to do is to be willing to pay the price because we love jesus paid the price out of love and he calls us to pay the price so to speak in loving people and to pay that price over time to play the long game which is the third point that i want to get to this morning Um, how long does it take for an oak tree to grow depends on the kind of oak tree There are some oak trees that take 30 years to be fully grown. Starts out with a little seed and you have to be patient to get to that point where you have a full grown oak tree. Well, the point that I want to make here is in the next section of Acts 13 is that the God who tells us to share the good news of the water of life and the God who sends us into a world in which there's going to be opposition also calls us to play the long game, just like he plays the long game. And that's what we have pictured because God plays the long game by over time, keeping his promises and fulfilling his purposes. So if you would look at verses 13 through 25, the next part of this chapter, it says now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Pampas and came to Perga in Pamphylia, But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he had also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, what, you, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. And so Paul and Barnabas, they leave this island and they go west and north and they go back to the mainland and they go back to an area that is now modern Turkey. And so they go to this area and they begin uh, preaching the gospel. Uh, but at the beginning of this leg of the journey, John Mark leaves them. And later on, we'll find out that Paul and Barnabas, or at least Paul, wasn't too happy about that. And we're not sure if he left because of the rigors of the trip or if he left because Barnabas was beginning to play second fiddle to Paul. We don't really know. But they, they go uh, to this new city And they go to a synagogue service, which was Paul's starting point. He would preach the gospel to the Jews and then he'd go to the Gentiles and he would start in the synagogue. And the outline or the worship order in the synagogue was it began with prayers and then it moved to the reading of the one, a portion from the first five books of the Old Testament and then to a portion from the rest of the New Test uh, Old Testament. And then there would be a priestly blessing and then they would ask someone to actually comment on what was read. And usually they designate someone, the leader of the synagogue, God would designate someone to do that at this uh, in this uh, situation, on this occasion, for whatever reason, they decided to let Paul and Barnabas do that. And Paul takes advantage of that. And what he does is he reviews the history of Israel. He says, you remember, brethren, how God uh, rescued our people from Egypt, that they spent time in the wilderness, and then they conquered the land of Canaan. There was a period of judges until Samuel, and then God raised up Saul, then he raised up David, and then there was this big, long break like a thousand years. And then he jumps ahead to the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. And he says that God kept his promise. And it's mentioned in there that there was 450 years initially, 400 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, 10 years conquering the land of Canaan. And then there was a period of the judges, a period of the kings, David, David, and uh, Saul, and then there was this thousand years. And so my point is that God was keeping his promise of a Savior over a long period of time. And if you read the Bible, you realize that God uh, often takes time to accomplish his work. He promised a Savior right after the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And it took him thousands of years before he sent the seed of the woman to conquer the serpent. But God kept his promise. And we need to realize that if we're going to imitate God in offering the water of life, that we have to recognize that we need to be in it for the long haul. We need to be patient uh, in the process. And one of the things that is really encouraging when you think about this Paul talks about the history of Israel, and he says it's all about God keeping a promise. And for those of you who are familiar with covenant theology, the idea of a covenant is very much about the issue of God's promises. And uh, Sinclair Ferguson, who's a Reformed theologian, um, talks about the the meaning of of covenant. And he says a promise, it is a promise that God makes, an oath that he takes a life and death commitment to fulfill his promise. And then he goes on to talk about the fact, if you think about God's covenant with Noah, and he gives a, a rainbow and says, I will never flood the earth in judgment upon the world like I just did. I'll never do that again. And theologians, um, biblical scholars will look at the word that we translate rainbow and say, it's really simply bow. And many will say, just like a bow and arrow. And he mentioned the fact that there are those who would say that God is communicating that in the bow, it's really the picture of a bow with an arrow pointing straight at the heart of God that says, If I fail to keep my word, if I fail to keep my promise, may I die. And then he uses the illustration of Abraham and the covenant with Abraham. And he tells Abraham to split all these animals and then line them up. And God appears as a light in a smoking oven and goes between these animals that have been killed. What's the whole point of that? The point is, God is saying again, I've made a promise to you, Abraham, and I would rather die than not fulfill my promise. The ultimate Covenant is the new covenant. And it was fulfilled in the death of Jesus, who would say, I would rather die than not fulfill my promise of forgiveness and life. I promised you forgiveness through a Savior. I promise you eternal life through a Savior. And I would rather die than not fulfill that promise. And so the picture of um, covenant which is focusing on the promise of God, a God who says, I will die to make sure I fulfill my promise to you. It's meant to be a huge encouragement to us in a world that is threatening us with death. Don't speak the name of Jesus or we might kill you. Just go to a Muslim country. Just go to another country and see how real that threat is. And so, but we see God keeping his promise And he kept it in spite of the Israelites. Uh, It says he put up with them. There's two ways to understand that. It means he provided for them over those years, but he also put up with their rebelliousness. And he still kept his promise, even through their sin and their rebellion. Another interesting thing about all this is that he kept his promise through David. David as well as other sinners. and But he calls David a man after his own heart. And uh, Calvin and others will raise the question, um, why does God call David a, a man after his own heart when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had his or her uh, husband Uriah killed? How is that a man after God's own heart? And he talks about the fact that God is saying that he was characterized as a man who truly trusted God, loved God, and wanted to do what pleased God. But there was a time in his life when he wasn't there. And Calvin actually compares, and he's discussing in the Gospels, Doubting Thomas. And, and there's a sense in which Doubting Thomas kind of fell into a backslidden state an unbelieving state. He said, I'm not going to believe until I do see this or whatever. And Calvin compares doubting Thomas at that point in his life to David while he was committing the sin with um, Bathsheba and her husband. And he says uh, this about it. He says, we have a striking instance of this uh, when he says, there appears to be no longer any faith in them. But as soon as God has chastised them with a rod, the rebellion of their flesh is subdued and they return to their right senses. It says, We have a striking instance of this in David. For so long as he is permitted to gratify his lust, we see how he indulges without restraint. Every person would have thought that at that time, faith had been altogether banished from his mind. And yet by a short exhortation of the prophet, he is so suddenly recalled to life that it may easily be inferred that some spark, though it had been choked, still remained in his mind and speedily burst into a flame. The point he's making here is that when David was doing what he was doing with Bathsheba and having her husband killed, he was acting like an unbeliever. And... Uh, Calvin is arguing that it appeared that he had just simply walked away from the faith, so to speak. And yet, when Nathan comes and challenges him and speaks the truth in love, the spark that's there is rekindled. Which says that there can be people who have professed Christ and have walked away and are seemingly opposed to Christ and we should still play the long game with them not give up on them too quickly we should still speak the gospel and pray if there is real life there that it's and blazes up into a fire once again that little spark that's there and so we're to play the long game with people we're not to give up on people we're to keep loving because God does keep his promises he fulfills His purposes. So so what are we to keep in mind as we talk with people? We're to be committed to loving our family and friends no matter what. Because they've taken surveys of people who've come to Christ and they have asked them, how did you come to Christ? And the overwhelming majority of people would say, through relationships, through Christians who talked to me and loved me it's not usually through watching a preacher on t v or you know um, you know picking up a track in the bathroom, which there's nothing wrong with gospel being preached on t v or leaving tracks in the bathroom, but most people are going to say that the primary thing that God used were people in my life who actually talked to me about Christ, and this can be challenging and sometimes. A relationship has to be handled very carefully. You may remember in First Peter chapter three, it talks about uh, wives with husbands who are um, disobedient to the word, which could be a reference to unbelieving husbands, or it could be a reference to a husband like David who 's walked away from the faith or who 's not living like um, he should as a Christian. It says, in the same way you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that if even any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. It was basically saying that um, there may be situations in which it's hard to say things, but there's always a place for loving and playing the long game, continuing to love in those circumstances and being a testimony to Christ in that way. And as important as speaking the gospel is, our relationship with people and what we do is very, very important as well. There's another story about a missionary to uh, India, um, ironically, back in 1967 who got sick with TB. And he was in this uh, TB sanitarium. And uh, he was trying to share the gospel with people there, even though he didn't know the language. So he was passing out Bibles or trying to, trying to pass out tracts, trying to um, somehow uh, spread the gospel there. And the patients, the doctors, everybody there didn't want it, refused it, wouldn't take anything from him. And he was terribly discouraged. And so he was sick himself. um, He's got all these other patients around him. And one night, uh, this man he notices at the middle, in the middle of the night because he woke up coughing and he notices this man not too far from him who's trying to get out of bed and he's so weak, he, he gets up as far as he can and then he falls back down and he just starts crying. And in the morning, you find out that he was trying to go to the bathroom. Uh, it causes a big ruckus because the nurses and everybody there are just mad at him because they have to clean him up and the smell's terrible and, and so all the other patients are complaining and... It happens again the next night. And this missionary wakes up because he's coughing. He sees this man trying to get out of bed. He sees him fall back down because he doesn't have the strength to get up on his own. And he hears him crying again. And the missionary says, you know what? I don't like these kinds of situations any more than anybody else. I'm repulsed by this kind of situation. uh, The smells and the difficulty. And I'm sick and weak but I'm stronger than he is. And so he says, I got up out of bed for some reason. uh, God, I'm sure, granted him the grace. He gets up out of bed. He actually is able, sick and as as sick and weak as he is, he picks this guy up because he was so, uh, this guy was so sick and so light that he could even pick him up and he took him to the bathroom, held him up while he went to the bathroom, brought him back to the bed and as he's laying him down, the man kisses him and thanks him he goes back to bed, and he doesn't think anything more of it. And then he says he wakes up about 4 a.m., a few hours later, and somebody comes, and they bring him some tea. First kind act that anybody had done to him since he was in the hospital. And and that person says, could I, you know, the best way he could... And I have one of those things you were passing out earlier. And so he gave him a track. And as the day goes along, all the patients, all the hospital staff, they start coming to this guy and and say, can I have a Bible? Can I have a track? Can I have these things? So what happened there? They saw this guy come in and they thought he was just a rich American who did not care anything about them. He shows an act of kindness and all of a sudden God uses that act of kindness to open their hearts to at least hear the offer of the gospel, to hear the offer of life. And so um, it's very easy for us to to think that maybe um, giving up on relationships, giving up on people is the thing to do because they seem so hard. And I've shared the gospel with them Three times, you know, and or we're just we're trying to love them and they're still not responding. They're not asking us for a track or a Bible or anything. And yet God calls us to keep loving them and praying for them and being um, ready to play the long game. Because the reality is God took hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to fulfill his promise of a Savior. So we should not be surprised if he doesn't call us to love people for decades before we see any fruit. Who knows, it may be overnight, like the story I just shared, or it might be a long, long time. But God says, don't grow weary in well-doing. There will be fruit from it of one kind or another. Let's pray. Father, just pray that you would help us as we think about these things. Hopefully, we're thinking about the people in our lives that don't know you, our family, extended family, our friends, our co-workers, maybe even people that we've gotten to know at the grocery store or, or other people. I pray, Father, that you would just help us to think in fresh new ways about what it means to be your representative and what it means to... Uh, offer the water of life and and how we shouldn 't be surprised if it um, is met with opposition, and yet you call us to play the long game and to continue to seek ways to share the gospel when we can, and certainly to continue loving no matter what, so please strengthen our faith, renew our vision, renew our heart. In whatever way is needed, especially in those relationships where we've grown maybe uh, a little um, disappointed and, and uh, hardened to other people's hardness, uh, deliver us from, from that, I pray. And use us, Father, to love people to Christ and encourage us in that, we pray. Father, we just thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.